If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey, about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Today, we're going to be talking about the model minority myth. There is a lot of trauma coming from, you know, all these East Asian Americans and immigrants. And I think that kind of informs a little bit of this model minority myth, this idea that, that safety is a priority. And to be safe, you keep your head down, you become invisible, not realizing the true cost of that invisibility. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. Welcome to season one, where we talk about the history and culture of immigrant communities. So you just heard a clip from Dr. Denise Yu, a family medicine physician who eloquently describes the idea of the model minority. You know, up until now, I've been doing episodes that are mainly focused on the background and context of different communities. But today we're going to be talking about a specific topic, the model minority myth. Because as I do these episodes, common themes are starting to emerge from different communities that I want to focus on because certain topics just need a whole episode for itself. The model minority myth is one of those concepts that deserves a whole episode. Now, you may or may not have heard about this idea of the model minority myth. In the last few years, I feel like people have been using this term a lot. And if you're like me, you may have heard it, you may have a general understanding of it. But today, I want to dive deep into this idea of model minority myth and how it affects people's health. We'll define model minority myth in this episode today. But at the core of it, the model minority myth emphasizes the idea that certain people should be small, should not take up so much space, and should definitely not cause trouble when they're harmed by systems that don't prioritize them or even acknowledge their humanity. This model minority myth has been applied to many Asian American communities, depending on time and place, and even some African communities. It's essentially been applied to immigrant groups that have thrived in systems that have been unfavorable to them, but they thrive anyway. There's a way to interpret that. We can talk about resiliency. We can talk about the hustle that many immigrant communities have had to learn. But many aspects of the model minority myth are problematic. It affects the mental health of our patients significantly. And more than that, this episode is also about your colleagues, the people you work with that bear this burden daily of quote unquote being a model minority. This concept, often internalized, makes them feel like they can't speak up like they don't have a voice, like they have to be quiet and suffer because that's what's been expected of them and that's what they've always been told. And that's a problem because we need everyone 
to be able to have a voice and speak up in order to change systems that are not working for our patients and oftentimes not supporting the healers who are struggling in a system that doesn't prioritize their well-being. We need everybody to take up as much space as they need to to be heard. This is important. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the history of the model minority myth, the problematic aspects of it, then we're going to connect it to health. And then finally, Dr. Yu is going to share her own story of internalizing this idea of being a model minority and how it has affected her own mental health. As always, if this is your first time listening, go to healthcareforhumans.org and sign up. If you like this episode, subscribe and share with one other person. Here's Dr. Yu. Dr. Yu, welcome to the show. Hey, Raj, how are you? I'm good. Let's talk about model minority. Denise, how do you describe model minority? I think people maybe have heard about it. Some people may know about it. Let's state the definition. Right. So I think the model minority myth is very much an American myth. And it's this idea that started around the 1960s or so that Asian Americans as a community have successfully integrated into mainstream culture and that we've overcome all challenges of racial biases and we are thriving. And specifically, this means that we all work really hard. We don't make trouble. We don't complain. We have two parent households. We're apolitical, passive, neutral, cold. We're all naturally academically gifted and otherwise high achieving, but not enough to be like in leadership positions. But we don't, you know, make too much trouble about that. And that we have all successfully assimilated and thrived in American culture. Wow. <laughs> that was eloquent to me. I think you nailed it. It's better than all these definitions I'm reading about. So that's the essence of model minority, right? That one specific minority group has achieved high degree of success, financial, educational, familial, despite the structures and whatever history they experienced because of their work ethic and culture. And we all should strive to be like them, especially other immigrant groups. So now that we have the definition, I think it's helpful to get some context around it. I would start in the 1850s, where Asian Americans, specifically Chinese immigrants, were not the model minority at that time. They were exploited cheap labor. They were stigmatized as lazy, dirty, immoral. People were coming into our country to do something that's helpful for our economy, but not somebody we need to aspire to or something we should have a positive stereotype for. Let's talk about the context in the 1850s, Denise. You were bringing some things up around that time. What should we talk about? Yeah, basically in the 1850s in China, there were a bunch of opium wars. And briefly, you know, Britain wanted to keep selling opium to Chinese population. China says no. Britain says screw you. And they start a war. And then eventually Britain and French win the war, which results in a huge loss of territory from China and unequal treaty, a huge amount of reparations that China has to pay to Britain and France, which is a huge amount of money. It's so much of their GDP that they're not really expected to be paying that within the next century or so. And then there was a second opium war, which was really more of the same. But most of these opium wars were happening in the Canton region in South China. Right. And so we're also seeing a wave of immigrants who are trying to leave their war-torn country. And so we see a lot of them come into America, like the gold rush, for cheap labor to build the railroads as well. 
And initially they were tolerated, right? But once they were perceived to be threatening to white Americans, that's when they became demonized. So Chinese immigrants were often used to break wage strikes with Irish workers who at that time were another vulnerable minority at the time. So there's lots of massacres, lots of anti-Chinese sentiment. There's the Chinese Exclusion Act, which you had briefly discussed before. Let's bring that date up again for people who don't remember. 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act is enacted. I think it's helpful to remember that date because that's when the U.S. decides, hey, let's just exclude this large group of immigrants because we don't want them here anymore. Right. And so the Chinese existed in this really gray area because they also at the time were not allowed to become citizens, right? So even if they're born there, they cannot be citizens. They are forever a foreigner and they're excluded from immigration into the country as well. I will say that there was exceptions to the Chinese Exclusion Act. So if you're a merchant, a student, teacher, or diplomat, you are not part of that Exclusion Act. So a lot of Chinese people ended up registering as restaurant owners or to be able to come into and stay in America. Thanks, Denise. So Mm -hmm. at this point, there's still no model minority. Right. We're just minorities who are here, who we sometimes want, sometimes don't. And then 1940, Japanese internment starts after Pearl Harbor. And then what happened during that period is Japan had propaganda about American racism. Can you call it propaganda? Just maybe (laughs) telling people what's happening in America. I don't know. About how, hey, did you know America just won't allow any Chinese in their country and they're actually racist? So then in 1943, we decided, the U.S., we repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act to counter this message or propaganda that, hey, like, actually, we're not racist. And Chinese Americans are recast as good Asians in contrast to bad Japanese because of the historical context of World War II and what's happening. And so in 1950s and 60s, so many Asian Americans, right, Japanese and Chinese, have experienced this back and forth and whiplash about do they belong here or are they welcomed here? And terrified by the xenophobia and disenfranchisement they continued to experience, they attempted to keep their heads down and assimilate into American society because they were also getting explicit and implicit instructions that you need to assimilate. So that's what happened. And then in 1965, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 is passed, which allowed more immigration from Asia. Remember that nobody from Asia could really come here, with a few exceptions. But there was a new tiered system where preference was given to skilled immigrants with relatives already in the U.S. and steep barriers to entry for poor and working class immigrants. I think that's helpful because now people sometimes look at the broader Asian American population. There's a lot of diversity there. We'll talk about that. But they say, hey, like this portion of the population seems to be really successful. There was some self-selection because of immigration policies of who came into this country. Not necessarily the cultural work ethic wasn't the only variable involved in this quote-unquote success. The model minority, the idea of model minority came about in 1966, or at least people attribute to this specific article, which was Success Story, colon, Japanese American Style by William Peterson in New York Times Magazine. National Geographic had this article to talk about this article, and I loved how they summarized it. This is what they said. 
The article talks about how Japanese Americans, in spite of being interned by their own government, managed to succeed and become contributing members of society without making a big fuss about being imprisoned against their will. This is a minority that has risen above even prejudiced criticism, and they had achieved all of this, quote unquote, by their own almost totally unaided effort. They're law-abiding, hardworking, well-educated, and even well-dressed immigrants. And he contrasted them with Black Americans who he claimed were, quote-unquote, problem minorities, who had rightfully earned some of the prejudice against them. So you can see there's a lot of components to this. One is highlighting a specific group of people saying, hey, look how they succeeded and didn't complain, and then pitting them against another minority, especially during the time where people were fighting for their own rights. Anything to add to that, Denise? I think going back to that shift in public opinion, you know, there was a lot of PR reasons why the U.S. had to be nicer to Chinese immigrants. Right after Pearl Harbor, China became one of the first allies to the U.S. during World War II and thought maybe like the Chinese Exclusion Act really wasn't too diplomatic. And so they partially repealed the Exclusion Act, right, with the Magnuson Act, and that only allowed 105 immigrants per year. So it didn't fully open up the doors, but it did start it. But again, was just another example of how Chinese Americans have been a pawn for the white majority. You know, they use us as they see fit. In this situation, it was for very political PR reasons. And of course, later using us to pit us against the Black community as well. And I think the other context to add is that, you know, during all of this in China, there was huge upheaval. So the Communist Party takes over, Chairman Mao comes to power, there's a cultural revolution, the Great Leap Forward that results in mass famine, and there's these ongoing struggle sessions, which are just events to publicly shame, torture, and kill people. And there is true scarcity for socioeconomic advancement for the population in general, right? There's limited access to school, only 5% of high school grads who want to go to college are actually able to. And so when the act got fully repealed in 1965, now we're seeing a lot of people coming, new immigrants from China who, yes, are more highly educated, maybe more professional in terms of their occupation, but they're also coming from a very war-torn country, very volatile regions, and from very recent significant poverty. And so there's a history of like violence and generational trauma from both the new immigrants coming over during the 1960s, and also from the immigrants who've been here since 1850s and having to deal with the terror and the massacres that they've been victim to the whole time that they've been here. And so there is a lot of trauma coming from, you know, all these East Asian Americans and immigrants. And I think that kind of informs a little bit of this model minority myth, this idea that, that safety is a priority. And to be safe, you keep your head down, you become invisible, not realizing the true cost of that invisibility. Well said, Denise. Okay, let's break this down. Model minority is that concept. And the myth was added on because we say it's not true. What are the problems with the idea of model minority? Hey, Asian Americans make a lot of money and they're really successful. So aren't they the model minority, Denise? I mean, yeah, you would think that this is a really good stereotype, right? Because we got a lot of money. We got a lot of good jobs. We have really good home ownership. So I guess there were statistics that seemed to back up the model minority myth, right? They were saying that, you know, Asian Americans in general had higher levels of education, higher levels of income, higher levels of socioeconomic status, professional occupation as well. 
But the problem is with the model minority myth, it homogenizes our experience. It assumes that all Asians have similar backgrounds, values, goals, experiences. It's assuming that East Asians are similar to Southeast Asians who are similar to the Pacific Islander and Native Hawaiian population, as well as the various populations of communities within India. And so when you actually break down the statistics, what you actually see, for example, in terms of like poverty rate. So poverty rate within the U.S. is about 12 percent overall. For Asian Americans, it's also 12 percent. And you think, great, that's not bad. You're doing great. You're hitting that benchmark. But when you actually break it down between different ethnicities and races, you see that the Hmong population actually has a poverty rate of 38 percent compared to the Japanese population that has about a 10 percent poverty rate. And so there's a huge disparity within the, quote, Asian American minority. And I think we see an even better example of that when we look at education level, right? And so for people who are 25 years or older and do not have a high school degree, overall, that's about 15%. So pretty low within the U.S. And if you look at Asians, 11%. Like, we're good, right? We're doing so good. But again, if you keep breaking it down, Cambodians, 39% of them do not have a high school degree. Look at the Hmong people, 40%. Laotian, 34%. And then the Vietnamese, 51%. That's huge. That's such a huge disparity within the population. And because they get lumped together with a bunch of these high-performing East Asians and South Asians, they become invisible. Okay, I'll take that answer, Denise. Originally, we thought the Chinese were model Americans. Then we said Japanese. And then we said all Asian Americans. Yeah, Asian American is a big category with over 50 countries, with twice as many languages and dialects, and we collapse individual achievements and mask disparities and discrimination. I get it. Let's just say Chinese, Japanese, and Indians. I'm Indian. How about we just say we're the model minority? Let's not include all the Asian groups. Can I say that? What's wrong with that? <laughs> I think there's this idea, again, that this is like a good stereotype, right? But I think... What it does, again, is that it homogenizes all of our experiences, all of our backgrounds, and it cheapens our achievements and it punishes those who don't conform. You know, if I excelled in school, it's because I'm naturally gifted and didn't have to work hard. And if I don't excel, it, it must be because I'm lazy or just, you know, I'm just really, really dumb. And the author, Dr. Jenny Wang, she spoke of this in her book, Permission to Come Home, where she was struggling in school in the third grade. But instead of a teacher suggesting extra one-on-one -on -one help after school, getting a tutor, et cetera, which is typically what is offered to other struggling students, she wasn't offered that. And she was just advised to be held back a grade. And we see this often with Asian students who may struggle with learning disabilities because it's assumed, whether consciously or unconsciously, that they will succeed in whatever subject. And so when they don't measure up, it must be because they're lazy or not intelligent, or that there's something inherently wrong with them, and they don't get offered the same resources. And this is the same concept that happens not just in academics, but in healthcare, employment, education, etc. And so it's a stereotype that creates this idea of us being almost superhuman, but it also perpetuates this narrative that we're also subhuman as well, and really dehumanizes us. Yeah, that's a whole nother point. So I get it. Each community still has lots of individuals with different backgrounds. And it's hard to say an entire country is a model minority. We all hold different experiences. And it really dismisses our individuality. We hold on to this idea of a specific group as model minority. I think I want to 
highlight the point you made that sometimes we're superhuman, sometimes we're subhuman, because this relates to some events that's happened in the last few years where this positive stereotype, quote unquote positive, although you just talked about the negative aspects of it, of being successful, sometimes that competence can lead to envy and competition or the idea that you're competing. Hey, get out of my neighborhood. I don't have a job. Why are all these Asians taking my jobs and the seats in my school? Or it can also lead to thinking, hey, these Asians like work super hard, but they're like so cold and unsociable and leads to hate crimes, like subhuman part of it. Am I saying that right? It's like almost like a double-edged sword, right? That on one hand, there are all these, quote, good characteristics. But on the other hand, there's also all these negative connotations that go along with that as well. And I think it's this idea that, like, if you don't fit into this narrow definition of what it means to be a good immigrant, if you step out of your lane, then you don't have any worth, is, I think, the message that they're saying. And that your value must be earned because you don't have any value intrinsically. Okay, Denise. So when we talk about success, it's a specific kind of success, right? Because there's this thing called glass ceiling. Tell us what that means to you. It's this idea. I think it was initially started as a way to explain why we do not see more female leaders in the upper echelons of leadership or in the C-suite. This idea that you can see the leadership positions, you can see those people, but there is something blocking you. It morphed into something called the bamboo ceiling, right? To drive the disparity that we see in Asian Americans being in the upper echelons of leadership in the C-suite, in the executive suite. And this idea that Asians model minority myth, we're known to be hard workers, we'll get our work done, we'll put our head down for the good of the team. But because that we're passive, because we're so neutral, we don't have good leadership skills. And therefore, it is a way to justify our absence in the higher up leadership position. I think it's a good way to say it. And the last thing, just to highlight again, is the model minority has a lot of problematic components, including collapsing massive diversity into one term. It has negative aspects to it. It's not just a positive stereotype. And success doesn't really mean success. The last part of it is it helps drive a wedge between different racial groups because it is saying that a good minority or immigrant should not fight against systemic nature of any problems, that they just need to take it in stride. As I said in that quote by Peterson, that the goal is to just keep working hard, even though we interned you against your will. And that's how people should react to suffering and injustice. It's used to discount and discredit the justice that 1960s were demanding. And it creates this artificial hierarchy of races, right? It helps Asians feel superior. But and so this culture dangles this carrot. But because of our phenotype, we will never be considered part of the dominant culture. We will never be on equal footing because we will always be seen as foreigners. And I see many Asian Americans kind of buying into this. It's there than other people of color because look how close we are to our white brothers and sisters. I think going back to that point of it seems so positive and people, I think, challenge it less mm -hmm. and it, people aren't as vigilant about it, even though it tends to enforce the belief that are fundamental differences among racial groups when we know race is a social construct. And it masks, as we said, within group 
differences and makes people part of that community feel out of place when they don't match this vision of who you should be. Let's transition and talk about health, Denise. That's what we're here to talk about. It seems like we're talking about model minority, but it's closely linked to health. There's a few things I wanted to talk about, but tell me, how have you seen model minority myth manifest as negative health outcomes or positive, if there are, within your patients? Yeah, I, I think I see a very interesting spectrum of population. So I see recent adult immigrants, so first-generation immigrants. I see 1.5-generation immigrants, so immigrants like me who come over as children, second-generation, third-generation immigrants, so people who have been born in this country but are the children or descendants of immigrants. And so I see adults, I see children, and I see kind of young adults and kind of everything in between. I think the biggest effect I've seen is truly mental health. And so just recently I had this patient. He was a 40-something-year-old non-English-speaking male, and he comes in with chest pain, right? And so he has already gone to urgent care. He's gotten the whole workup, and I talk with him. And very quickly, it becomes very apparent to me that his symptoms are not, not cardiac and etiology, but related more to his mental health and anxiety. And I ask him if he's been having stress or if he's worried about something, because especially in the older immigrant population, there's a lot of stigma with mental health. I'm more likely to get a truthful response if I ask about stress than if I were to ask directly if he was having anxiety. So I ask him this. He looks down. He doesn't answer. I let the silence linger for about 30, 60 seconds. I ask him again, and I get a very small nod from him, but he doesn't make eye contact with me. He doesn't want to elaborate any further. And I do my due diligence. I make sure he's safe at home, no access to guns, no thoughts about hurting himself. And for all these, quote, easy questions, he answers really quickly, sustains eye contact with me. But whenever I ask when he wants to share what else is going on, he clams up, he looks down, he avoids eye contact. And this encounter really stuck with me because I think in terms of his mental space, I think a lot of that is it's very similar to what we see in people who have internalized the model minority myth, but also a lot of the cultural aspects, especially in Chinese culture as well, and how that hinders individuals from seeking care. And honestly, it was how I was maybe like 15, 20 years ago, and I really saw myself in him not being able to have the skills to kind of even identify exactly what it is that you're feeling. And then on the other hand of the spectrum, I'm caring for young professionals who have quote unquote assimilated into American culture and having to deal with generational trauma. Maybe they don't even have a name for it, but they're having systemic symptoms of it. Perhaps they um, were parentified at a young age. So this idea of parentification, basically not allowing children to be children. And my own personal experience has been when I was young, like around eight years old, having my parents ask me to translate for them certain medical documents or things I got in the mail or having to translate other things like tax documents, like something an eight-year-old really shouldn't do. And my experience is not unique, right? This is very common amongst immigrants from any part of the country outside the U.S. I mean, to navigate that. And also this idea as the eldest female child that I need to do more household chores or take care of my younger sibling. So this turning a child into a parent, into an almost like a mini adult and not allowing them to be children. And how does this play out years down the line? What are the ramifications of that? And in addition, straddling two or more different cultures and value sets and feeling the tug of both. Struggling with the prior generation's values versus our own. 
And it's no longer just a generational gap, but it's also a culture gap. It's also a language gap. And so you're dealing with these huge gaps that need bridges to cross and that it is a very unique to the immigrant experience. And then part of the values that we were talking about was the older generation having this very set idea of what the map is to success. And maybe this young professional in front of me is thinking, did I mess up? Did I choose the right path that my parents set out for us? Or did I stray from the path? And do I have thoughts and feelings about that as well? I just think that there isn't enough education out there for people to even put words to what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. Let's debrief because you had a few different points there. One is people who don't even have the language to communicate the stress and worry. I think that's the story that you expressed. And linking that to the idea of model minority, it's just how we can all carry self-doubt, inadequacy, and psychological problems, carrying that idea of who we're supposed to be in our identity, and we're not meeting those standards. I don't know if it was going on for that person that you said, but I had a follow-up question of, I know it stuck with you. What should we be doing for people like that when Yes, there's so many resources that is unavailable, but how do we connect with somebody at that level to help them feel like there's trust between us? If you wanted to share whenever you're ready, you can. And what does that connection look like for that first patient encounter you said? After, again, doing my due diligence, I asked him, I'm like, how do you think I can support you? Do you want me to cure the options, right? We talk about counseling. We talk about follow-up with me. We talk about medication. And when I say medication, he like perks up because that's what he's actually looking for. He wants a pill to fix this. And we talk about it. And eventually I do end up starting him on an antidepressant. And I don't know if many other providers would have done the same without knowing more details of what exactly he's feeling or what's causing his anxiety and things like that. But again, I went over the risks, the benefits, the potential side effects, and this is what he was really hoping for. And from my perspective, it seemed like the right thing to do, obviously with close follow-up and things like that. And I think it helps build that sense of trust, right? In the sense that he feels like he can come to me. There was something that he was specifically looking for, And that seemed like appropriate treatment for him. And my hope is that this would open doors in the future where he feels like, okay, like this doctor seems like someone who understands me on a foundational level. Whether true or untrue, I would hope that he came away from that encounter with that feeling. And I hope that in the future, that if he had other concerns, other thoughts, that he would also be able to return. And again, with some of that trust. And something that I've seen in my patient population is that once there's one patient who feels that trust, who feels that understanding, they start telling their friends and coworkers. And then all of a sudden you see all these people coming in who all work at the same place and who all heard, you know, that you were a good doctor and that you listen to people and that, you know, they trust you, even though like my Chinese is not as good as other people's, but they believe that they can trust you. And I think creating that relationship is so important to be able to move forward. Yeah, I love that. So what I heard from you is partly high vigilance about, is there something related to mental health happening here? 
with the right vocabulary, you're going to talk about anxiety and depression. You're talking about worry and stress. Something that people can understand. And even though he didn't share everything, you met him where he was and kept talking about it in a way that was open until he felt like this was the right next step for him. And hoping that's the beginning of a relationship. Maybe eventually he'll share more with you, but that takes time. But I thought that was excellent what you just said there. The second part that you shared was about working professionals who are struggling in their own way, juggling multiple cultures, who, as you said, have been through parentification, which is interesting because when I talk about don't use children for interpreting, we just talk about it from the context and perspective of, hey, like for adult problems, kids aren't going to be as good or accurate, but we don't think about, hey, what is their experience and how is this affecting them for the rest of their life? putting them in these serious situations where you're asking them to translate about their parents' vulnerability and their fallibility, especially with kids. And you think about how we grew up for so long thinking our parents are invincible and they know everything, right? And putting a child in a place very early on saying they're not, and you may lose them or they're sick. And that effect that people can carry on as they're growing up. And I think there's awareness there because people don't even know it to consider how that could affect somebody's mental health growing up. But this is the follow-up question. In that situation with that working professional that you talked about, who's carrying the model minority, the parentification, juggling multiple cultures, how do you show up for them to help them feel seen or heard? And what does that look like? Let me marinate on that question for a little bit. This is the thing, though, Denise. Most people don't even think about it. A working professional comes, you're like, oh, so you're like stressed at your job. But it seems, hey, you're making a lot of money. You're like an executive director. Cool. Seems like overall you're well. So it's just stress of the job. When there's so many layers to this. And I don't think people will bring it up if like, well, if I tell them about parentification, will this person even understand? They've never even thought about it probably. And I'm not going to go through that like hassle and burden of trying to explain all of that to this person. But I think there's a connection that can be made there if a person feels like this person gets it. Even though if they look like me, that's a plus. Hmm. Even though they don't look like me, they seem to understand what I've been through. And in this day and age when I can't find people that look like me all the time, like maybe this is where I start. And maybe they'll show up for me in ways that I didn't expect and I'll trust them a little bit more. On that note, a little off topic, I was thinking about this thing where growing up, most of my friends were immigrants or children of immigrants. And it's almost like there is this like foundational level of understanding between children of immigrants. And there is like almost a, this sort of trust. If you ever go to your friend's house, you never say like, ew, what's that smell? That is something that as an immigrant, like you never do because we all have had a friend, usually white, who's done that. And how much shame you feel about that, right? There's, I don't know, I feel like oh. there's this like inherent understanding and Classic trust. immigrant story of bringing lunch to school. <laughs> and you're like, exactly. what the hell are you eating? And you're like, this is what I call food. <laughs> Sorry, it's not like a PB&J, right? Like I brought dumplings <laughs> to school once and then I've never done it again in the, like the next 30-ish years. I've never done it again because of that one shameful experience, even though dumplings are delicious. Then, so getting back to your question for these patients, I think the biggest thing that we can do and I know how hard it is with all our time constraints is just to ask them, just ask questions. For example, I have a lot of patients who are very unhappy in their jobs. And I ask them, like, what's keeping you there? Why are you still doing this? Is this what you wanted to do? And I think just keep probing 
and trying to see like what their inherent motivation is. Like, why are you at this job that you hate? Can we pivot? If you feel like you can't, why? Why can't you pivot? You're 23 years old. I can't pivot because I'm old, but you can still pivot because you're young. And so I think just asking, and that does take time, that does take trust, but I think it helps patients internalize and reflect on why am I doing this? Why, why did I go into finance if I absolutely hate it? And I think the other thing that we can do for our patients is to remind them to have compassion for themselves, that they deserve compassion. They deserve to enjoy their life. They deserve to have value, that they have inherent value that's not tied to their salary, that's not tied to their socioeconomic status or their education, or that they in of themselves are completely imperfectly perfect, that they as a human have value that does not need to be earned. And I think that this is such a huge part of this model minority myth that you have to keep your head down and work and you work. And there's this Chinese phrase called uh, which basically means to eat your suffering, right? That any suffering you go through, any cruelty, you just swallow it and it theoretically goes away, not realizing that it turns into this cancer that slowly spreads throughout your body. But I feel like because of that, there is this idea that you don't deserve to play. You have to earn it. It's not something that's necessary. It's not something that you need. So rest or play or just enjoyment is not, it's just not valued. It's not prioritized. And I think that can just be really powerful for some people because they've never been told that. They've always thought they have to fight for it or earn it. And that if they don't succeed to whatever artificial like bar they have, that they're, therefore they don't deserve happiness or to play or to enjoy or whatever it is that might be available for them. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that was wonderful. I think what I heard was, one, you can ask better questions with this awareness and know where to probe, where not to push too much. But you also know what beliefs people may hold that you could potentially reframe, which could be causing their mental health distress by understanding all of this. Thanks for summarizing my thoughts so well. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> this, this is what I'm here. The one thing that I mentioned was we talked about the self-doubt, mental health aspects of model minority myth. The other is about how we approach patients because I think we carry this bias sometimes of, hey, like this person's educated, they know what's going on. I'm going to talk about colon cancer screening or I'm going to talk about blank, but they probably understand it all. Let's get to the other stuff and not do our due diligence with certain topics. And there's a hypothesis that we do that more for Asian Americans because we believe in this idea of model minority. So there's some implicit bias there, if not explicit prejudice in a positive way, right? Just differential treatment. Do you feel like that could be true? I, I'm just thinking about, do I do that? And probably, right? Because we're all biased and we step in, we try to see where we need to zoom in and focus. And sometimes we make the wrong call. So again, it's in order to challenge that, I think we should ask more questions about, do you really understand all of this and how to do this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I have a few thoughts on that. So early on in my training, I was taking care of this pregnant Chinese speaking only woman. And I'm early in my training, so I will be gracious with myself for that. But halfway through her pregnancy, it becomes apparent that she does not feel financially secure. She is financially insecure. She's housing insecure, food insecure. 
and would qualify for WIC and additional support. And I had not asked her because in my mind I had internalized, well, like, she's Asian, like, she must be doing fine. Like, she would have told me if she wasn't, right? And brushed it off. And so, you know, moving forward, now I make it my standard of care to ask everyone, almost at every visit, are you having any, like, housing or food or financial insecurity? And so that was a huge takeaway for me. And I think a lot of other people must do similar things where we think, oh, like, they probably have someone who can help translate stuff for them, or they probably have community, or they have family, or they have something that uh, someone else who can support them that I don't need to. And I think it is a very common problem. Yeah. I think we covered all facets of it. Anything else that we're missing? How did the model minority myth affect you, Denise? Share your story. (laughs) So I am technically a 1.5 generation immigrant, right? So I came over when I was a child. And I think being able to reflect back on my life, and I think I have done a lot of work in the last few years in terms of emotional literacy and done a lot of self-education. And I think I am able to back and be able to say, wow, like my family has gone through so much generational trauma and it played out in very specific ways. And as a result, it led to really maladaptive behaviors in myself, right? So these behaviors that helped me survive my childhood no longer became helpful as an adult. And a lot of it was this idea of all these characteristics that play into the model minority myth. So this idea of respecting your elders at your own cost. But seeing how as children, we're not, it's not a reflex to be made small, right? Children are allowed. They live life very fully. And But somewhere along that line, somewhere in my development, I got conditioned to be small, to not take up space. And like seeing how that played out into my older years, into my adult years, I think I, I grieved for myself a little bit. I wondered, damn, Denise, like, why did you have to put yourself through that? And I feel so much compassion for myself for going through all of that and to be able to successfully come out the other side. And I'm not perfect. I'm still learning, but I feel so much in terms of who I am as a person that I have intrinsic value in of myself that's not related to all these other benchmarks. And so being able to deal with that, it's just been an amazing journey. But I am very lucky that I've had a supportive community who's been helping me on this journey. And so I'll share a story where, you know, early on in the pandemic, I was feeling very burnt out. I was very depressed. I felt like I was failing my patients, especially my my Chinese immigrant patient population. And so I tell my dad, I'm like, dad, I think I'm like a little depressed. And you know what he says to me? Without hesitation, he says, I thought you were better than that. As if it was like a moral failing on my part that I was depressed, not because of this giant pandemic or like everything else happening in our world, but like a moral failing on my part. And I think that just goes to show you, like, I'm thankfully, I don't think I internalized it. But if you're hearing that message throughout your whole life, you know, how that ends up turning you into someone who doesn't trust your own feelings, right? You don't trust yourself. You don't trust your own judgment. And having to navigate life like that can be so difficult. I do want to emphasize that even though we're talking about a lot of pathology, I don't want to insinuate that my culture is only traumatic and can only lead to multiple mental health illnesses. I love my culture. Our food is amazing. We have so many holidays, mostly revolving around food. 
Our history is rich. Our families are strong. We've survived so much trauma and grief, but also experienced so much joy and love. And we care for each other. We care for our elderly. We feel a duty towards each other, for better, for worse. I think we're imperfectly perfect just the way that humans are. And if I could choose any culture to be born into, I wouldn't change who I am. I think my culture is beautiful. It's not perfect, but it is beautiful. And I don't want to come off as just pathologizing this whole like population of people. That was beautiful, Denise. Thank you. Someone once told me you don't follow Aretha Franklin, so I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show with us. Thanks, Raz. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. And if you like this episode, share it with one other person and sign up at healthcareforhumans.org to join our community. See you soon. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish.